and welcome to Under the Grid, the podcast exploring the history of Milton Keynes from the collections team at Milton Keynes Museum. We delve deep and not so deep into time to tell you some of our favourite things about the area and share our discoveries from working at the museum. I'm Catherine, I'm the archivist. I'm Sarah, I'm the collections officer. And I'm Tabitha, I'm the archaeology curator and collections conservator. Hello and welcome to this month's episode. Um, We just wanted to thank everyone who sent us in some feedback about the podcast. Thank you. Yes, thank you. It's all been very positive, so we're very happy. Um, This episode, I feel like we need some sleigh bells. (laughs) I feel like we should have started off with some jingle bells. (laughs) We don't have any. (laughs) The Christmas collection is just next door. We could go and get some, couldn't we? But yeah, um, if you might have guessed, we're talking about Christmas. So we're going to be talking about like the cultural traditions of Christmas um, and what they have to do with a local flavour. Well we are but not right now actually because I'm going to go a bit off theme (laughs) Um, because trying to find something Christmas related in an archaeology collection when Christmas doesn't exist for most of human history is actually quite challenging. So I decided to get a bit creative and um, talk about Mithraism. And I'm a hundred, disclaimer, I'm a hundred percent shoehorning this in because I want to talk about it. Um, so you're just going to have to have to deal with that, I'm afraid. But I mean, I, you did look very Christmassy today. Yes, yes in my, dressed appropriately. I am dressed appropriately. I am dressed as Mithras. So you just have to imagine what that looks like. Should we take a picture and put yeah, one up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you're listening to this going, what what is Mithraism? Um, it's an Iranian religion that was brought Uh, into the Roman world by the Hamian archers from Syria who were conscripted into the Roman army uh, and came over to the UK in the early 2nd century CE. So what's really interesting about Mithraism is that um, most history books will tell you that it was rapidly adopted into the Roman world because the Roman legionaries brought it back with them. But that actually doesn't make any sense. The spread of Hamian archers, people from the part of the world where Mithraism originated, coincides almost directly with the spread of Mithraism. Um, And the focal points where the Hamian archers were stationed, such as Hadrian Wall, and then retired, also coincides with where Mithraism was prevalent. So it definitely wasn't the Roman legionaries. It's putting the focus on the wrong place because, you know, we want to talk about the Romans and not other cultures that the Romans took over. Um, But in this episode, we are going to learn. So back to the topic. Um, Mithraism became the most important religion to the Roman army. And then it was a massive rival to Christianity, along with Gnosticism. Uh, The reason why Mithraism was a massive competitor is that both Mithraism and Christianity were considered to be mystery cults, uh, which means you had to be indoctrinated into the religion in order to participate. This is entirely counter to Roman religion, which was exclusively public with the exception of a couple of subcults. Uh, The Romans needed religion to be public because it allowed them to spread and cement propaganda, to indoctrinate other cultures and to keep an eye on growing movements, which so often were tied into religion. Uh, Mystery cults terrified the Romans because they had no formal control over it. Um, Nowadays, things like Mithraism are really popular to talk about because the sites associated with them get lots of press for being unusual and interesting, like the Mithraeum in London and the Bloomsbury Centre. It's underground, it's cool, you've got a book to go in. It's a fun time. So what does Mithras actually have to do with Christmas? I swear it's not completely shoehorned. Um, Mithras was a divine being born from a virgin birth. And can you guess his birthday? 25th of December. 100% it is the 25th of December. Um, Though this is argued about, 
So archaeologists say that the 25th was only considered the birthday because it was the festival day to Sol, who is the Roman god of the sun. Since Mithras is a sun god and the two become syncretized, which means the gods become interchangeable, um, so do their festival days. Um, but when you then look at who else is born on the 25th, which would be Jesus for a Christian side of things, things become a bit more confusing. Um, it doesn't seem to be true that one religion stole the date from the other. It seems to be more that they both took the underlying concept, right? So the 25th of December is the darkest day of the year. So the idea of worshipping the birth or existence of a sun god or a saviour makes sense. It, it just, you need to put your imagery in somewhere makes sense to worship something light on the darkest day mm. um in some stories mithras is also you know visited by shepherds just as jesus is when he's born in other stories he's also born an adult from a rock holding a knife so you know it <laughs> just varies <laughs> depends on what story you want to go with That's that wild. one's definitely not in the new testament um but the 25th of december um, or at least the week, that week of December, has always been when people have had celebrations. So the Romans had their big end of year celebration starting on the 17th of December with the Saturnalia. The Saturnalia started as a one day event. And by the time you get to the empire, it's like a week long event. Some of the emperors were like, whoa, 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 this is, you guys actually need to do work now. You can't do That's this. That's too much. Uh, yeah. So they tried to cut it down, but it was always a big deal, the Saturnalia. And that is the gift giving celebration. So putting, um, you know, your big day of celebration at the end of what is already a week of celebration, if you're a new religion, makes a lot of sense because people are already going to be up for a party. It's a way to talk about it. And it's a way that you can kind of shoehorn your way into kind of the main festivities. Um, so why is this relevant to Milton Keynes at all? Um, so lots of Roman towns like London and Kylian have very obvious Mithraic locations. They've got their own Mithraea, they've got their imagery. But Milton Keynes also has its own Mithraic imagery and potential Mithraic locations, which I'm going to at least argue for here. And if you agree, awesome. If you don't, that's also fine because this is completely theoretical. Um, so I'm going to go back to Bancroft Villa, my favourite site, favorite place <laughs> just talk about it all the time. Um, so quick recap, Bancroft Villa was built in the first century CE as a farmhouse. It underwent a number of renovations, the biggest of which being in the fourth century, where the bathhouse was renovated and expanded. Um, there are a number of objects from the villa which may present an argument for the presence of Mithraic worship at the site. So firstly, we've got wall plaster. Uh, Bancroft Villa has a lot of wall plaster that was removed during the renovations and was recorded as a destruction layer. Unfortunately, this means we don't know what rooms the plaster came from, only that it is from the villa itself and before the 4th century. There are two pieces of wall plaster which have human figures on them, which in itself is actually really rare because wall plaster tends to be block colours or vegetation and animals, like the fish wall frieze that we will eventually have on display. Um, so the two human fragments, one is part of a face and the other is a face and the upper body. So both of these faces have short brown curly hair and are wearing what's called a Phrygian cap. And if you don't know what that is, it's a Smurf hat, but facing forwards. Um, and there are only a few mythological figures who wear this Phrygian cap, which are Jupiter Dolichensis, Attis and Mithras. So Jupiter Dolichensis is a really obscure Eastern version of Jupiter who's worshipped in the third century and then just kind of disappears. Attis is an important cult figure for the cult of Kubele or Cybele. Um, but this cult doesn't really make a big impact in Roman Britain. It's really big everywhere else in the empire, but you just don't really see it over here. 
Um, and then lastly, we have Mithras, whose religion had a huge impact in Roman Britain, mostly due to the presence of the Hamian archers. Um, so what do we do with this figure with the, the same face in the hat? Um, Mithras is often flanked by his two attendants, who are called Cautes and Cautopates, who are also depicted with the same dress as Mithras, wearing the same hat and carrying torches. So we've got two identical figures, both with the caps, which seem to be painted in the same style, and they're on the same background, so the likelihood is they actually came from the same picture. Are these potentially Mithras and an attendant? Are they the two attendants themselves? There's two of them, so we can kind of get away from the Jupiter and the Attis angle because there would only be one Attis or one Jupiter. Whereas for Mithras, we know we can have three figures that have the little Smurf hat on, mm -hmm. and we've got two of them. Um, so that's the wall plaster. And just because there is a potential Mithraic scene on wall plaster, it doesn't mean that Mithraic worship happened. It just means someone wanted to depict a, a specific mythological scene. So what about the rituals themselves? Um, Mithraism is an interesting religion because it's private. So that's why the Mithraea are underground or under another building. Uh, they're often underneath apartment blocks like in Ostia or bathhouses like in Rome itself. Um, but there are Mithraea found above ground and these are often linked to military sites or to private households. And that's kind of the, the lens that we're going to be looking at for Bancroft Villa. Yeah. So Bancroft has a really interesting room that has a fantastic mosaic, which you will also be able to see soon, which we have lovingly called Room 8, because that's what it's labelled on the excavation. Very expertly conserved. Uh, very, recently. very expertly yes. conserved. Beautiful. Um, so this room is huge, and it has no clear purpose. So this room, the best way to think about it is like a multi-purpose conference room in a hotel. You can use it for a wedding, for conventions, for business meetings, for anything. And it was proposed in the monograph and the write-up for the site that this room might have been so big because it would have had partitions in it. So you could have separated it for multiple meetings, for multiple events going on. Um, <clears throat> So what better place to have a Mithraic worship as a room which was multi-purpose? You can have your Mithraic worship on Tuesday nights, but, you know, if the Leatherworking Guild needed to meet too, you can partition the room off. Um, it's also like in the Leisure Centre where they bring the curtain across and you've got like some kids football party one side and badminton players the other side. I was literally going to say badminton. <laughs> it's, it's always, always the badminton, badminton players. Um, and this, this might be a bit overreaching, but we need to remember that people in the ancient world were exactly like us, just without Instagram, um, which, you know, Augustus would have loved. But um, they, they would have done the same things that we would have done. So just because you didn't have a purpose-built room for a specific thing that you were doing doesn't mean you couldn't use a community centre or things like that. And that's the idea that this room is so big, mm -hmm. it doesn't just serve a family, it has to serve the local community as well. There is no archaeological evidence for the partitions, but the partitions would be wood anyway, so you wouldn't have anything surviving to begin with. And since we only have part of the floor, there's a possibility that there might have been ruts somewhere else in the floor for partitions. We just only have, we've got three metres of what would have been a 15 metre floor, right? And we've got a tiny section of it. Yeah. Um, so on top of having an ideal space for Mithraic worship and some potentially nice Mithraic wall decorations, what else do we have? So going back to the rituals part of things, um, Ritual is a bad word in archaeology because it's used to describe anything an archaeologist can't explain. They're like, oh, this thing came out of the ground. I don't know what it is. It's ritual. Um, in this instance, I am using ritual for its intended purpose, <laughs> which is something to do with religion, which is done on a frequent basis. 
Um, so a really cool object from Bancroft Villa is the half-burnt pinecone found in the villa. And this pinecone is unique because it was imported from Italy. And it's called a stone pine. And it's a type of pinecone that if you burn it, it smells really nice. So it's like an incense or like a, you know, a plug-in perfume for your house because you haven't washed the mold off and you need to get rid of that smell. <laughs> um, so... One option is that it's literally just there to smell nice, but we also know that burning pine cones was part of a lot of different religious festivals all around the ancient world. And for the Roman sphere, that was especially true for Eastern gods, so gods that came from India or Pakistan around that kind of area, which Mithras fits in quite well to. Um, and it doesn't go unnoticed that at Bancroft as well, you find a lot of hairpins made of bone with pine cones carved into them. So pine cones are clearly an image that comes up a lot and seems to come up a lot specifically here at Bancroft. There has to be some sort of connection. I'm not sure what that connection is, but if we look into this here as looking at it ritually, maybe that's the connection. Um, and then lastly, we have to go on to the roosters. So there are two, <laughs> everyone's <a little> smiling <laughs> at me. I love the roosters. Um, there are two rooster finds from Bancroft. One is a marble rooster that is part of a larger sculpture, and the other was a small bronze figurine of a rooster that was metal detected on the site during excavation. This has been lost. So if you're listening to this and you have the rooster, you know, I, I would like it. Anonymously mail it. I'll take no it. Questions asked. No questions asked. No questions. Please give me the rooster. Um... So roosters are interesting because people look at them and go, okay, Mercury worship. Mercury is a god who's always shown with roosters. Um, we've got lots of evidence for him in Britain. We've got the Shrine at Uli. Even in Milton Keynes, we have Mercury objects, including figurines of rams, tortoises, and even an altar to Mercury from Emberton. So Mercury worship definitely fits a rooster. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be Mithraic as well, because what we need to remember is that Mercury is a god who becomes involved in the Mithraic cults, so statues of him are commonly found in Mithraea and associated with statues of Mithras himself. There's a further complication, which is that Mercury isn't the only god who's represented by roosters. Um, one of my favourite mythological figures is Mithraic Kronos. So Kronos is a god of time, and the cult of Mithras portrays him with a lion's head, wings wrapped in a snake with some cool zodiac designs and a rooster by his feet fun fact a lion-headed mithraic figure is called a leontocephalus wow um, that's a lot of animals represented there yeah yes. yeah they just kind of went a bit crazy they were like just all the animals represented at once um so while this marble rooster might be part of a Mercury statue, there's nothing to say it's not part of a Mithraic Kronos statue either. Um, the only argument against that is that there are no representations of Mithraic Kronos in Britain. Um, it's difficult, though, because there are a bunch in Europe that aren't actually identified as Mithraic Kronos. So it's possible that <clears throat> some people have them in their collections and don't know that's what it is. So if you tried to database it, you wouldn't find it. But even if it is Mercury... Mercury is still associated with uh, Mithras, and it can still be an example of Mithraic worship. Um, so what does this mean? In my opinion, these artifacts and aspects um, show that there is potentially Mithraic worship at Bancroft Villa. But it's just a theory. Um, so if you're listening to this going, yeah, that sounds awesome, great. If you're listening to it thinking, no, I disagree, that's also absolutely fine. Um, but it's just one of those things that while you're getting ready for your Christmas celebrations or whatever holiday you celebrate at the end of this month, 
Um, you know, think about the Romans living at Bancroft, who were definitely getting ready for their Saturnalia party on the 17th, were getting ready to party and exchange gifts with people. But then on the 25th, the same day that a lot of people celebrate, they also would have been celebrating. And just it's that nice link to the past that these guys also would have been having a party the same time as us. We've all, it seems like we've always needed that midwinter, like, pick-me-up, yeah. some kind of yes. celebration that we can look forward to in the middle of winter and to get us through that second half. To... Definitely. Okay, so I'm going to bring it slightly more up to date. And every year at the museum we do Victorian Christmas and you can come and drink mulled wine and sing carols in the parlour. And you often hear it said that the Victorians invented Christmas or the way we see Christmas today was invented by the Victorians. So I thought I'd have a look and see if that's true. Um, and I would say probably not. An awful lot of what we do now existed before the Victorians, but they just popularised it. Are you myth-busting today? I am kind of myth-busting, yes. Look forward to it. <laughs> um, so people had started to move out and move to the cities with the Industrial Revolution and with the advent then of the railways in the Victorian period, you could go home at Christmas so you could have family Christmases. And Victoria and Albert, or I should say Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, were seen as the epitome of family life and everybody wanted to follow them and copy them. And they'd be in all the magazines at Christmas and so that's why people think, for example, the Christmas tree was invented or brought across by Prince Albert. But that's not true. So that's <gasps> the first myth I am going to bust. Yay! Um, in actual fact, because it was credited, it's always been credited to Prince Albert in 1848. But Queen Charlotte, who was the wife of George III, had Christmas trees as early as 1800. Oh. Um, so they wouldn't necessarily be a whole tree. Quite often it was just a yew branch that was brought into the house and decorated with candles and sweets and um, things like that. Tinsel? Probably not tinsel. Oh, no. Homemade tinsel. Yes. Possibly homemade tinsel or something, streamers of some sort, quite possibly. Um, but Christmas trees are German. Traditionally, they were first started off in Germany and Queen Charlotte was German. So she'd have brought it across with her. Um, and they go back to at least the 17th century in Germany. Um, so she always, when had at Christmas, always had a yew branch in. The palace but in 1800 she wanted to have a really big party for all the children of the principal families in Windsor so she had a large yew tree brought into Queen's Lodge and it was covered in candles and decorations and sweets and fruit and presents for all of the children Ooh. so you can just imagine as a small child going and seeing your first proper big Christmas tree all covered in sweets and sparkly lights and presents for you must have been amazing. That's like a stimulation overload. Yes. <laughs> Must yes. have got very uh, rowdy. <laughs> Quite probably. Very overexcited, overactive, hyped up children. Yes. Um, so following this party, all the wealthy families started to have Christmas trees. Um, but it was in the mid-century, 1840s, 1850s, that the periodicals started to publish pictures of Prince Albert and Queen Victoria with all of their children gathered around their Christmas tree that they started to become really popular with the masses as well. 
Um, but one thing that I did see about the Christmas tree, um, it's a description in the Illustrated London News. They didn't call it a Christmas tree, they called it a tree of love. Aww. Which I, yeah, that's the reaction I had. I don't know why they called it a tree of love, but it I might start calling mine a tree, tree of love. love. Maybe yes. We should bring that back. Yeah. Definitely. But even before that, we'd always had some kind of greenery in the house. Holly and Ivy traditionally would have been brought in at Christmas. Quite often just for the day, brought in at Christmas Eve. Um, the holly represents the male and the ivy female. You twist them together and that means you'll have fertility in your house for the next year. So if you don't want fertility... If you don't house, want any more children, don't but mix your holly and your ivy together. Keep them very separate. Yes. And fun fact, local fact, West Park in Bedfordshire said to have the oldest Christmas tree in the country. The oldest Christmas the tree? oldest Christmas tree. How so? How old? It's planted in 1856, was brought in every year for Christmas until it grew too tall to bring inside the house. So they'd dig it up? and They would dig it up, yeah. And then put it back outside again? Yes. Okay. But I know that there are people that do that now, so you can buy a Christmas tree and then you give it back to them and it gets replanted until next year. Until they get too big. That's really good. It's a nice sustainable way of having a Christmas mm. tree. Present giving is another big key thing at Christmas nowadays. It's the best part of Christmas. Best part of Christmas, some might say. Um, and Christmas was, for the Victorians, was for everyone. And with industrialisation, mechanisation, the middle class was created so more gifts could be given. Um, it was easier to get hold of them. People had a disposable income, so they could buy more presents. Um, mass production of toys meant everything was so much more available. But presents and gift giving was always something beforehand that you would give. So again, it became bigger with the Victorians, but it existed before them. Maybe before people were more hand-making gifts? And yes, even in the Victorian yeah. period, they still were hand-making them. And often it said, one thing I read, that that was more precious to people if it was a handmade gift than a bought one. Yeah. That's but, coming back now. The, yes. At the end of lockdown, people are advocating to buy local, buy from um, independent artisans and things for Christmas this year. Yeah. I guess the big thing for Christmas is Father Christmas. Um, he has his roots back in the 3rd, 4th century AD with St Nicholas. Um, who was said to give gifts to people who was a wealthy man but would secretly give his money away to people. And there is one story that he threw some money down a chimney so a man didn't have to sell his daughters. Um, and it landed in one of their stockings, which was by the Christmas, by the fireplace. And so that's why people put stockings up at Christmas. Um, but So he has kind of been there all the way through. His day is the 6th of December, so often gifts were given on the 6th of December, not the 25th, mm -hmm. because that was celebrating him more. Um, and his character is often shown as being in red bishop's robes. So again, that could be where the red of Father Christmas could potentially be coming in. In the 19th century, there was a symbol of the Christmas season, a mythical being, wasn't necessarily based specifically on St Nicholas, but he was just seen as being a jolly old man. He presided over parties rather than necessarily about the gift giving. It's all about having fun. Um, and there were, in Tudor Stuart times, you had the Lord of Misrule as well, who was the mischievous one, the naughty one that played pranks and 
from the look on Tabitha's face, she would be the person dressed up as the Lord of Misrule playing pranks on everybody at Christmas. It's a Roman tradition. It's from the Sassanalia, because Sassan's obviously a, a god who's very dangerous, and he's the one time of the year that the this chaotic force of evil is allowed to be free. So you'd have the um, the king that you would crown who would be the person who would go around causing mischief and things for the Sassanalia. Yep, so hangover from that. See, it's all... all... One big story. It all links together, it does. doesn't it? Um, so with the Victorians, there was kind of the, that change of that mythical being away from being strictly parties to more family life and children, because that was much more Victorian feel. Um, and so he was, he often at the start of this Victorian period would be seen with his glass in his hand, being jovial, purveyor of jollity, but also starting to give presents as well. Um, kind of a half pagan, half Christian kind of character there. Um, as the century went on, it became less and less about cruising and more and more about gift giving and being jolly and friendly and nice to children. Um, and it was, but it was mainly probably through the American influence that he became the Father Christmas that we know now, jolly and fat, with red clothes and a reindeer. It was not another myth that I'm going to bust Coca-Cola that invented Father Christmas <laughs> or first gave him his red outfit. Um, it's probably more likely Thomas Nast, who was a political cartoonist. In 1881, he drew Father Christmas in a red suit trimmed with white fur. He also drew Mrs. Claus and the elves, so that's when she kind of started to make her appearance and all the elves who made all the presents. Coca-Cola didn't use Father Christmas until the 1930s, mm -hmm. so long before then he was red. He was in many other colours as well. There was one article that I read that mentioned he had a rainbow suit. Um, That's amazing. <laughs> yes. There was an LGBTQ plus version of Father Christmas at some point in history. Brilliant. Well, we need to have that one at the museum. Yes, yes. definitely. Um, I guess another key... Christmas thing is Christmas food, which is the bit that's slightly lost on me because I don't like dried fruit. No. So Christmas puddings, mince pies, stolen, it's all... Me neither. Rubbish and disgusting. <laughs> I just eat more of my favourite things at yes. Christmas. Chocolate. Yulogs, chocolate. But they all, again, existed long before Victorians, the Tudors, even before then, was some form of Christmas pudding or a plum pudding or a figgy pudding. Um, they had lots of um, Christian connotations. So for the Victorians, you would have 13 ingredients in your Christmas pudding, which represented Jesus and his disciples, and the same with your um, mince pies. The flaming brandy would represent the passion of Christ. You would always make them on the last Sunday before the Advent, which is stir up Sunday. Um, and you'd mix all your ingredients together with a wooden spoon, which represented the manger. Um, and you would be stirring from east to west to represent the journey of the three wise men. Um, and each family stirred three times and made a wish. But they did have lots of different recipes for their Christmas pudding. So some would have involved meat, some wouldn't, some would have alcohol, some wouldn't. So there was almost a recipe for everybody. But I suspect not a recipe for either of us, Catherine, because you take the fruit out of a 
Christmas pudding, you've not got much left. No. Um, but they would also put little things in the Christmas pudding. So most of us probably have heard of the sixpence going in and you were the lucky one to get silver sixpence. And that would mean you'd have wealth for the rest, next year. But you could also get put rings in there, which would, if you've got the ring, you'd be getting married in the next 12 months. Or the thimble, which would mean you wouldn't be and you'd be a spinster for forever. So... You don't want the thimble. Oh, well. It, <laughs> you might be able to go and play Monopoly, though, if you've got a thimble. True. Possibly. Um, and, of course, big thing, the meat, the turkey at Christmas. Um, Victorians probably would have only been turkey for the wealthier people. Um, it would have been goose or beef, possibly even rabbit for everybody else. Um you would have had goose clubs that you could pay into so you could pay a little bit of money every week and then at Christmas you could have your goose to eat and most people wouldn't have had an oven to cook it in. So bakers would leave their ovens on so everybody could go to their local bakers at Christmas on Christmas Day and cook their goose. What if somebody stole your goose? It's Christmas. Maybe I mean, there's stole goose... your goose at Christmas. You might be part of goose club but other people might not be part of a goose club and have no goose and want to steal your goose. I found no reference to, <laughs> to that. Thievery. To Guard thievery the of geese. God, yeah. Then, right. I mean, somebody might stay there and, or you might put something in an intricate pattern of stuffing or something around your goose or tie its legs in some way so you know whose goose is whose. That's true. Maybe people won't. So bad in those days. Maybe they weren't. <laughs> I would still be wary. I thought you were going to say I would be there stealing other people's things. <laughs> Maybe. Um, so in the 1840s, people Turkey became more easy to get with. There was an influx of poultry from Europe, so it was cheaper. And we had the railways, so it was much easier to transport them because most turkeys... A weird, I really want to say grown, but weird, in Norfolk and East Anglia and that, Cambridgeshire, so they would have to be walked to London before, but once you've got the railways, you could put them on the in a carriage and transport them, and their little feet wouldn't get so tired. And they wouldn't, yeah, because if you're walking them from like Norfolk to London, they're going to lose a lot of their fat, aren't they? Yes, so I think they would walk them a good few weeks before Christmas so that they could then feed them up oh, so okay. they're all nice and plump and juicy for Catherine to steal um, for Christmas. I like this because you've accused me of lying before now we can accuse you of thievery. Fine. I am not a thief. <laughs> Carry on. Um, but the two key things that the Victorians did invent at Christmas Ooh. Christmas cards and Christmas crackers. Or bangs of expectation, as crackers were known at one point. Why are we not calling I them that? I don't know. Tree, trees of love and bangs of expectation. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. They were invented by Tom Smith in 1841. And he was a confectioner and he'd seen French ideas of bonbons wrapped in paper. And he wanted to bring that back across to this country. And so he was wrapping them up and he used to put little notes in them and gradually that developed. There is a myth saying that he put the snap in them because he heard a crackle of a fire. 
but his brother worked for the theatre and did props and things like that, so we think it's much more likely that his brother said, oh, but if you put this in there, it'll explode and be much more exciting. So did they used to have, like, little chocolates in the crackers yes. before? Yes, so it had sweets originally. It's way and better then... than a shoehorn, isn't it? <laughs> I want chocolate in my crackers now. Or in my bangs of expectation. Bangs of expectation. Yes. Maybe all bangs of expectation have sweets, and so you just have to look out for some of those. Yes. Pick your own. Um, yes. Bringing it back. And by the 1870s, they had hats and jokes in them as well. And jokes are much better. We keep getting crackers nowadays that have facts in them or something like that. And nobody wants facts. Nobody wants facts. They want jokes. I'm just there for the hats. Yeah. And Christmas cards were invented by Sir Henry Cole in about 1843 and he didn't want to have to write individual letters to all of his friends and family at Christmas so he asked his friend to design him up a Christmas card that could be printed and then he just have to sign his name. So laziness basically? Laziness invented the Christmas card. card, Efficiency. Okay. Yes, Victorian efficiency invented the Christmas card whereas I think now that I struggle to find the motivation to write all of our Christmas cards so... God. Imagine having to write a personalised letter to everybody, only family and friends. Are you just going to send out an email that you BCC to all of you, yeah. to everyone? <laughs> to whom it may concern, Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah. That's very that's efficient. Yeah. And I think I will end there because that's the two things that the Victorians did invent. I've got a fun fact for you. Okay. About yes. St Nick. Yes. Um, when the Russian decided that they were done with paganism and wanted to become Christian in the ninth century. Uh, the upper class Russians were all like, yeah, 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 we'll find Christianity and then realised that, you know, the people working in the fields and living in the rural areas did not care. They had to merge all the saints with the Russian um, pagan pantheon in order to make people actually convert to Christianity. And Saint Nick got merged with the Russian god of the underworld, Volos or Veles. Oh that God. doesn't seem like a happy combination. But you've got to remember, to... the underworld is, it's not um, necessarily a bad thing because it's its where the dead go, but it's where, it's where their, their home is, right? So it's kind of like, there's no concept of hell or heaven, it's just everyone goes to the underworld. But also, if you're the god of the underworld, you're the god of everything below the soil. So the ground, so ha- um, plantation, agriculture, and things like that. And that's the, the positive side of... So it's not elves making their Christmas presents, it's the dead. Yes, it's the dead making your Christmas <laughs> presents. I think I like the idea of elves more than the dead. It's a bit creepy. Yeah. <laughs> On that note... Happy holidays! <laughs> so what I'm going to talk about is it's more nostalgia than it is history, really. Uh, but I don't apologise for that. Because <laughs> when, when you said... Well, when we agreed to a Christmas episode, I was like, oh no, what what on earth am I going to talk about? And then I had a brainwave and I was like, well, I'm going to talk about the Middleton Hall Christmas displays. Because um, when I was growing up, they were like super exciting. Uh, They used to be really good. And the anticipation of like, what was it going to be this year? What was what were you gonna see? Stuff like that. It was really like a highlight of the year. So you'd have like going on the miniature railway at Willem Lake and the Middleton Hall Christmas displays. 
<laughs> they were on a par. Um, so yeah, uh, that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, so my family really remember um, one year they had a big Peter Pan one. Um, so we remember the big like pirate ship. It was huge. Like I thought it was huge because I was a kid, but like adults have said that it was huge as well. Um, so the pirate ship had like Hook and Smee on it. And um, the thing that I thought was amazing uh, was <laughs> this is little detail. They had the crocodile um, in, in like the sea. Um, and if, if you know the story of Peter Pan, obviously um, he eats Hook's hand and, and then there's the clock that goes inside and everything. Um, and what they had was the sound effect of a ticking clock. And for some reason that's just stuck in my mind and I remember it being like, wow, they've even thought about that. <laughs> I don't remember like what Peter Pan and Tinkerbell were doing. I just remember this big pirate ship. Um, so I will talk about um, the first display that they had. So the shopping centre opened in um, August 1979, um, had its official opening in September. And then um, they had a Christmas grotto in, um, in December. Um, and it was a replica of a castle in a Disney film. And I want you to guess what Disney film the castle was from. Beauty and the Beast? No. No, it's too, it's, Beauty and the Beast is too recent. Is it Sleeping Beauty? No. no. Cinderella? No. Is it something really weird like Black Cauldron? <laughs> yeah, I've been a bit unfair really. It's like this super obscure film that I'd never heard of. And it was called The Spaceman and King Arthur. <laughs> oh, of course. I was just going to say that. What? It's on the tip of your tongue, wasn't it? So this was originally released in the US as Unidentified Flying Oddball and then re-released in the US as A Spaceman in King Arthur's Court. It wasn't even a Christmas film. It was based on Mark Twain's um, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And it, like, I've watched this film. I watched this film specifically so you guys didn't have to. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I was going to suggest we should watch it. Together. I'm invested. Yeah. Yeah. So let me tell you a little bit about the plot for like no reason at all. There's NASA are doing, or there's this professor at NASA. He's doing this like experimental space shuttle to test the theory of relativity. <laughs> and um, he says, he's in a committee meeting. The head of the committee goes, I'm not going to send good American men out on your experimental mission. And then the professor makes a weird joke about women being on the space program too. And then the head's like, no, not women at all either. And then this guy casually phones like somebody else in the organization and goes, stop what you're doing. I need you to make me a robot. And so this guy again, casually just like creates a humanoid robot that they then put in the space shuttle. And this really casual space mission, experimental casual space mission, the person who created the robot gets stuck in the space shuttle as it's lifting off. And then it goes back in time to, <laughs> to uh, 1803. They specifically say 1803 and it's King Arthur's court. Um, in 1803. Yeah, I was just going to say. Sorry, 803. <laughs> 803. Still 300 years too late, but that's fine. <laughs> exactly. And then the worst bit of the film is that it's all like entirely medieval in aesthetic. <laughs> There's jousting, there's knights, all, all that kind of stuff. So that's really fun. Um, so 
it's not even Christmassy. <laughs> this is my main problem. Why have they used it? Um, but anyway, back to... Back is it animated? No. Oh my God. <laughs> the lovely Jim Dale is in it. He's playing the evil Mordred. He's most known from the Carry On films. Uh, Ron Moody is also in it playing evil Merlin. Um, but yeah, it's just really bizarre. It's actually, there's a few amusing jokes in it, but it's not even really a kid's film. I think we should watch it. We need to watch it. I'm not sure you should waste your time. <laughs> anyway, back to Middleton Hall. So this castle, um, you can go inside. There's animated scenes um, with specially made models from classic Disney films like Dumbo, um, The Aristocats, uh, Pinocchio, The Jungle Book, all that kind of stuff. So it gets a bit more recognisable when you go inside. So it opened on the 10th of November and around 3,000 children visited the first day it opened and they were expecting um, about 100,000 to have visited by Christmas Eve. It was 30p to get in and uh, children received a hat, a balloon and a special Disney comic produced by the Milton Keynes Express, which was nice. Wow. Okay. Yeah. The whole thing cost um, almost £40,000, which is just over £200,000 in today's money. Gosh. That's quite a lot, isn't it? There's a lot of money. They were planning to reuse the castle. I don't know if they did. Um, and then recoup the rest from entrance fees. So 30p times 100000 is how were they going to reuse the castle? I don't know. <laughs> and the thing is, it didn't, like, I've seen pictures of it. It didn't look anything like Annick Castle, which is what they used in the film. <laughs> Problems all round. On the 22nd of November, um, King Lion from Bedknobs and Broomsticks and Winnie the Pooh and Tigger came along to the shopping centre to do their Christmas shopping and uh, visit children. Surely throughout. the king doesn't need to do his own Christmas shopping. Maybe he prefers to handpick things himself. <laughs> doesn't trust anyone else. Um, so that's what they did in 1979. That was the first Christmas display. So 1980, moving on, which was interesting because um, when I was looking through the newspapers, the Milton Keynes Express and stuff, um, I couldn't find any kind of reports about a Christmas display on a similar scale. But a couple of weeks ago, I was cataloguing a poster um, at my other job at the City Discovery Centre. Um, and the poster was undated, but it was um, advertising, come and see the Christmas, come and see the lights up at Central Milton Keynes. So it was all Christmassy. Um, and it also said about a 12 days of Christmas display. And I think this poster was from 1980 because they, um, I found newspaper reports that they held a fair in Middleton Hall um, around Christmas time for voluntary organisations in the city to fundraise. And the theme was around the world and they were selling arts and crafts and cakes and pies, doing tombolas, doing raffles, that kind of thing. And on the poster, it was advertising the around the world Christmas bazaar. So I, th I think that it was 1980. So they must have had a 12 days of Christmas display in 1980. But what I also found in the paper was that Larry Grayson came to turn on the Christmas lights. Ooh. <laughs> Do you know who Larry? Nobody knows who. <laughs> to be fair, I 
I knew his name, but I didn't really know who he was, so I had to look him up. Um, and he hosted the Generation Game from 1978 to 1982. Um, so Tabitha still looks blank. <laughs> I do at least know what the Generation Game was. Oh no, I'm I'm a loss here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so 1979, he would have been at the height of his fame. <laughs> okay, I was definitely not born. <laughs> yeah. not well, neither was. Um, he started his career as a drag artist and a stand-up comedian. But yeah, he did a lot of telly work later. So that was exciting. Um, on Christmas Eve, the About Anglia Christmas show, I guess like the ITV News Christmas show, um, broadcast live from Middleton Hall, where 200 local school kids gave a carol concert. And they were accompanied by the pipes and drums of the South East Branch of the Royal Scottish Pipe Band Association. So that was an exciting 1980. Yes. <laughs> Not quite the same as a big castle and and no. King Lions and I can't remember all the Winnie the, the other Pooh Winnie and the Tigger. Pooh. <laughs> nope. But possibly cheaper than £40,000. Yeah, it's like where did they store this castle? That's what I want to know. Where is it? Do yeah. they still have it? Do they still Can we have it? <laughs> So 1981 was the final year I will talk about, um, and the display was Fox and the Hound themed. That's also a Disney film, which is weird. It was also not really depressing. depressing. It was released on Boxing Day. Uh, is it Christmassy? I don't know. I've not seen it. It's it's horribly depressing. It? Oh no! Why were they releasing it around Christmas then? But Paul Daniels came to town on the Christmas lights. <laughs> Now, I've heard of Paul Daniels. Yes. Have you? Tabitha still looks blank. <laughs> he uh, was a famous musician. I was about to say musician. Magician. magician. <laughs> Had a wife called the lovely Debbie McGee. <laughs> Tabitha still looks blank. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's fine. It's very um, British culture thing. <laughs> So um, I asked uh, a few of my friends for some of their memories, you know, other people who grew up in Milton Keynes and what they thought about the Middleton Hall Christmas displays. Um, and yeah, generally the same as me, really. Um, my friend Chris says it was the happiest memories from her childhood and it's the only photos she still got from her childhood as well. She remembers Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So like, I don't know if Disney were sponsoring these Christmas displays. Like it. There's Peter Pan, there's uh, the Spaceman and King Arthur, there's uh, Fox and the Hounds, Peter Pan, yeah, must have been. Um, and she remembers again, like it always being really exciting and the anticipation of what it was going to be. Like they used to put like, oh, I think I think they still do, but they put boards up so you can't see what they're doing and like the activity behind um, was really, uh, really exciting. Um, <laughs> Leanne remembers going to see Father Christmas a lot. One year, she um, he asked her to leave him out a glass of milk, and she asked him if he'd prefer a dry martini instead. <laughs> <laughs> Did he? I, I think he refused that, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I remember I only went to see Father Christmas once at Milton Hall. I remember being really disappointed with my present. <laughs> it's quite hard to describe. It was like... Um, a shiny board and it had like the scene of the Simpsons um, front room 
and they had like those um, weird plasticky things that weren't quite stickers, but you could put them on the board and they'd sort of stay in place and you could remove them and kind of arrange different scenes. And I don't think I'd ever really seen The Simpsons. Like I knew what it was, <laughs> but I'd never really watched it. So it was just like, oh, great. Thanks, Santa. Um, oh, both Katie and Chris, they both remember the smell of it, like not in a bad way, but that it had a really distinct smell, like maybe fake snow or something. Was uh, it pine cones from... Oh, from Bangkok? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But they do say, like, smell evokes some of the strongest memories, don't they? Yes. It's one of the best senses for, for memories. So that's interesting. Um, my friend Shanks remembers when Frank Bruno was in the pantomime and he was supposed to come and uh, turn on the Christmas lights, but he was either late or he didn't show up. So they just went to um, Fatty Arbuckles, a restaurant in the food centre. Long gone, but much missed. <laughs> Fatty Arbuckles. <laughs> it was like an American diner and it had um, like Hollywood, uh, old Hollywood themed American diner. RIP to the food centre as well. Yes. Uh, my friend Her just remembers being little and how big and high up everything and all the decorations were and you know the the ceiling in Middleton Hall is really really quite high so yes. when you're looking up as a kid it was all yeah it all felt pretty epic when you were small if you were a fan of Disney yeah they all did seem very Disney related I suppose that's an easy way to get kids in Yes. But now, these days, you do have the train, which I don't remember them having when I was small, which is quite exciting. But yeah, if you um, remember any of the Middleton Hall Christmas displays, or if you've got any memories you want to share with us, then I'd be really interested to hear those. I'd really like to hear yes, them. Yes, definitely. Yeah, you can hit us up on social media or come into the museum, talk to the volunteers. And please come visit us. Um, we're open for Victorian Christmas, Friday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. We still have Santa tickets, although I probably shouldn't say that in case you're listening to this in January, when we won't have any Santa tickets left. But please come along. We're decorating, we're making rag chains, aren't we? Yes, we're trying to make authentic decorations. Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy Yule. <laughs> That's it for this episode. If you've got an idea for a future topic you'd like us to feature, then get in touch with us via social media. We're at MK Museum on Twitter and Facebook and at Milton Keynes Museum on Instagram. Also, check out our website, miltonkeynesmuseum.org.uk. Hi everyone, for our next episode we're going to need your help. If you have any questions about the work that the collections team do, anything about the collections itself, please send us an email by the 13th of December at collections at mkmuseum.org.uk so we can answer your questions in our upcoming January podcast. Thanks everyone!